The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing broadcasting from the Maple Knoll Radio Network here in the greater Cincinnati area. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and Real Life Real Estate is your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Thank you to the over 700 real estate investors, landlords, and entrepreneurs from 18 different states who attended the OREA Summit a few weeks back. Uh, It was a great time, lots of wonderful networking, deals being made out in the halls, lots of amazing education from our 18 experts from all over the United States, Um, lots of money raised for good causes, a good time was had by all, and... uh, if you want to follow up and find out more about next year's OREA conference, because, boy, if you missed it this year, you really missed it. Uh, it's November 3rd through 6th here in the greater Cincinnati area. You can follow the convention on Facebook and get updates as events warrant by going to the OREA convention page on Facebook or by uh, just following us at oreaconvention.com. The Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its last meeting for the month of November tomorrow night. It's an interesting meeting that uh, we do one time a year, and uh, people seem to really enjoy it because it's Ask the Expert Tables. There's no, there's no like lecture from the front of the room. It is experts on topics ranging from wholesaling to buying apartments to getting started asset protection negotiation many of the many of the same topics that were covered at the OREA convention but the concept here is you walk in with your questions and you get them answered cuz that's what those people are there for it's not a lecture you're not disturbing them by saying hey can i just ask you a quick question should i get a real estate license can i just ask you a quick question what's the best asset protection for me. Those people are to answer those questions. That meeting is open to the public. You can get more information at CincinnatiRIA.com and download a free first-time guest pass there. And uh, meeting starts at 6 p.m. ends tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Directions and so on are at CincinnatiRIA.com. One of the many folks from all over the United States who joined us this year at the OREA conference is Maurice Thompson, who is the director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. 
He has uh, a long history of prevailing in state and federal court cases on issues like health care freedom, private property rights, taxpayer rights, school choice, political speech, commercial speech, all the stuff that we like to talk about a lot in the real estate investing world, but most of us do not know what to do with. He was at the summit to talk about a recent win in federal court here in Ohio in regards to mandatory rental inspections, but uh, he's here today to both discuss that case and what else is going on in the property rights, business rights world. Uh, Joining us from his home in Columbus is Maurice Thompson. Maurice, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Good evening, Vina. Thank you. So let's start with the thing that the folks at the convention got to hear a lot about, but there's still people around the country who are not aware of it. Uh, And that is your recent victory in Portsmouth, Ohio, in a Portsmouth case against Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, regarding mandatory rental inspections, because this is a game changer for landlords who live in areas where the city charges them money to come into their properties every year and tell them to fix them. So let's talk, let's talk about first, what was the case about? And then we'll discuss like what the ruling really means for the rest of us and what next steps are. Sure. The last time that I think you had me on, we had just begun this case and I was just kind of describing the principles behind it. And uh, that's been about a year ago, though. So, so let me kind of uh, explain what the issues are and why we care and why other people should care about a case like this. Um, Occupational licensing in this country has been advancing at breakneck speed, and many of the people who are listening to the sounds of our voices right now will find that they need some sort of a government permission slip to do basic work that didn't used to require a license or a permission slip of any kind. And by some estimations, almost half of jobs in the nation now require some sort of a one kind of a government license or another. And one thing that for a long time, other than realtors, has been exempt from that is real estate. People could uh, become entrepreneurs, get in by buying some properties, and uh, essentially, you know, short of property taxes and all kinds of other property-based regulations, do whatever they might like to do. Um, Well, the occupational licensing field has kind of met up with the landlording business through what we typically call rental inspection requirements. And those are requirements that uh, even if you only have one property, and even that property is in great shape, so say that you're a family who moved into a new house and you decided to keep the old house and rent it out, you have to get a license in order to be a landlord in order to rent that house out. And the way that you get that license is by doing two things, each of which we find objectionable. And the first thing is that you have to pay what's basically extortion, a government fee, to the city that you live in in order to do that. And then secondly, you've got to have the home inspected. And this is not just uh, a come in, look around, make sure there's no rats or anything like that. Uh, it's a top-to-bottom, you know, 88-point inspection of every door, every, you know, cabinet door in the house, basement to attic, and then through the garage, the entire property. And 
many very good homes that are very reasonable to live in for oneself, uh, and failing these inspections and the the, um, the government folks who do these inspections will give them checklists that cost thousands and thousands of dollars in order to rectify these particular issues. And so this is quite burdensome on folks. And what we noticed is that the inspections are actually violate violations of individuals' Fourth Amendment rights because these are private homes. And even if they were businesses, the Fourth Amendment also applies to businesses. So these are government searches and a government search is what triggers Fourth Amendment analysis. So we've argued in these cases that it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment for a government official just to demand entry into your private residence, whether you rent it out or whether you live there. Because after all, it's somebody's home. If you don't live there, if you're the landlord and some tenant lives there, it's their home. Um, and there's no reason they should be second-class citizens. There's no reason that their home should be inspected um, when a worse-conditioned property next door of an owner-occupant is not inspected. So this demand to enter the home and, and look around for whatever they want is, in fact, a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And in the case uh, Baker v. Portsmouth, the federal court has agreed with us um, with what we really knew all along, is that this is a violation of Fourth Amendment rights. In these cases, um, there will be more of them because these ordinances are really all over the state of Ohio and growing all over the nation. But ideally, they'll stop growing and start receding after this court ruling. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is Maurice Thompson, director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. If you have questions for Maurice about anything that we are talking about today, you can give us a call at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email. Just go to realliferealestate.com, click the Ask a Question button, send in your question, and make sure, make sure, especially this week, that you tell us where you are writing from. We will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can always keep in touch with Real Life Real Estate on our website at realliferealestate.com, which now contains the upcoming shows, past shows. You can download the audios from the podcasts. You can um, enter your name and email address and get notified each week of what's coming up along with uh, articles by or about our guests and all kinds of cool stuff happens when you do that. You can also, of course, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash real life real estate. Talking today to Maurice Thompson, uh, this is this is in some ways an update of a show that we did about a year ago. And I was I was actually listening to that show, Maurice, and it was uh, it was interesting because, yeah, you mentioned the Portsmouth case, but at that time it was a case about Mount Healthy that was sort of the main focus of the show. And uh, why, why don't you talk about a little bit about what happened to that case, which might shed some light on why the Portsmouth case was such an important one. Right. That's interesting that you mentioned that. I'd forgotten all about that. The reality sometimes of challenging things that local governments do. And I, I should probably back up and say we're a constitutional rights firm and we're a nonprofit constitutional rights firm. So I'm not on uh, with you pitching business or anything like that. We don't take money from our clients. So um, so that there's that. But one of the challenges of suing local governments is that sometimes you win too quickly to make a precedent. So oftentimes you will file the lawsuit. You, you warn the, 
the local government that what they're doing is wrong, that it's unconstitutional, and that it's oppressive of people's rights, and they will pay no attention to you. So you'll file the lawsuit, and then they will almost immediately convene the city council or the local township trustees, and they will repeal the ordinance that you challenged or dramatically change it to make it a less offensive ordinance. And what happens at that point is that, of course, you don't really have much of a case anymore because the ordinance you've challenged has gone away. And that's what happened in Mount Healthy. And that, in fact, is one of the reasons that it's taken us years to really finally get a decision on rental inspections in Ohio. We would send a warning letter and we would file a lawsuit against the local government, and they would immediately uh, repeal their ordinances. These things would uh, just collapse on impact, basically. And... So finally, we, we met up with a local government uh, in Portsmouth that even though it did change its ordinance after we filed the lawsuit, it didn't change it enough. It still insisted on doing mandatory annual inspections and collecting these fees. Uh, some cities have repealed the inspection requirements to try to solve the Fourth Amendment problem, but they're still collecting the fees that are supposed to be used for the cost of the inspections, which is basically an illegal property tax. And this really gets to the heart of what we do at 1851, which is fight uh, illegal property taxes and regulations, and fight for taxpayers' rights, property owners' rights, and, and business owners' rights, as well as free speech and some other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, when the news came out about this this win that you had that, that said that uh, this court in southern Ohio, this federal court in southern Ohio, said that mandatory rental inspections without warrants, which... I think is as an important part of right. this. Right. Uh, you just you just can't do it. You just can't you can't say we are requiring uh, the city is requiring that uh, we be allowed into all rental properties for the purposes of finding out you know what we want you to do to the properties. It created some confusion in the bigger real estate investing world. You know, people were saying. Uh, well, does that apply to me? Because I live in California. Does it, uh, you know, does it mean does it mean rental registration is now illegal? Does it mean that Section Eight can't inspect my properties uh, before right. uh, I move in? So, so what? It, 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 who, who does this affect exactly right now, and how? Sure. Well, I'm glad you added that caveat about the warrant requirement. Of course, what the Fourth Amendment requires is that if, if a government inspector or searcher of any kind, whether police or otherwise, wants to enter your property, whether it's your home or your business, they typically will need a warrant or a legitimate exception to the warrant requirement. So, for example, they know that you're a big drug dealer with drugs on you and you're going to flush them down the toilet if they don't come in immediately, or you're an axe murderer and they're chasing you into the house. In those circumstances, they can come in. And there are also exceptions that apply to landlords. So what this ruling does not mean is that your neighbors cannot call uh, code enforcement on you, that your tenants cannot call code enforcement on you. In fact, if your tenants um, were to see some serious problems with your property and were to call code enforcement and they were to come out, the tenants could uh, invite those folks in and show them around. And this ruling doesn't stop any of that. And in fact, Really, the principle we're trying to vindicate here is the idea of just having government agents come in and just look around for whatever they might like to find, rather than what's basically called a suspicionless search, rather than a search with probable cause, which is the legal standard for a good reason for a government agent to come in and look around. So, for example, our 
our victories on these cases does not mean that if a code enforcement agent sees hundreds of rats flooding out of your basement <laughs> um, or something else terrible, that they don't have probable cause to enter the property and, and search for issues related to that problem. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, this is a Southern District of Ohio decision, so this certainly has application um, in the southern half of Ohio. The northern half of Ohio is also going to find it persuasive. So this is an Ohio-based decision. However, it's based upon the Fourth Amendment. The ruling is that the federal constitution says no to these warrantless inspections of your property without probable cause. So there's no reason that shouldn't apply in any other state across the nation, and we expect that it will when the right kind of ordinances are challenged. And at this point, this is the, if 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 we were writing a book instead of talking on the radio, there would be a big red box about what I'm about to say, and it would be in bold, and it would be an 18 point type, and we would make every we would make a huge huge point about this. It is important that listeners not go contact the guy who does their evictions and tell him about this case and have him go sue their city for these issues, even if those issues exist. Talk about why. Sure. So constitutional litigation requires a lot of things to be set up right. It requires the right kinds of clients. So we, we, interest, we litigate public interest issues. We don't litigate every kind of case under the sun and there are some important considerations when you're doing these kinds of cases. One is that you want to have a good client, uh, a landlord that has garbage in his front yard and upset tenants who doesn't take care of his property. is not the kind of person that you want litigating a case like this, and we don't support folks like that. We think that ultimately individuals should hold each other accountable through the market system, whether that means tenants don't rent from somebody, or, you know, even when necessary, they take the landlord to court, withhold rent, whatever it might have to be. But that's, that's a market-based system. And really, it's important that the right kind of person bring this kind of case in the right kind of court and against the right kind of ordinance. There are some registration requirements throughout the state and um, other kinds of search requirements that perhaps do allow for a, a warrant to be sought, and those ordinances ordinances shouldn't necessarily be challenged. It really depends on the wording of each individual ordinance, which is true of just about any kind of um, public policy issue or constitutional rights issue, is it really depends upon the language of the regulation. So when folks want me to take their case, the first thing that I have to have them do is send me uh, a PDF or something of their actual regulation that they want to challenge, and we can tell immediately at that point whether it's a good case or whether uh, another case would be better. You know, when you're doing public interest work, you always want to have the best facts possible in terms of the client and the actual regulation that you're challenged. And if you don't have the best facts, you might well lose that case and create a bad precedent that other judges will then pick up and attempt to use, not knowing about the bad facts and just seeing the result. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you have an attorney who doesn't really know how to litigate constitutional type stuff and you have a client who's really kind of a bad guy and the the court's going to be able to look at him and go well he's a slumlord no matter no wonder he doesn't want anybody in his houses and you have the wrong arguments and so on what we end up with is this one good precedent and then 
also a bad precedent, which I think kind of puts us back to square one, right? Right, exactly. So uh, we're going to we're gonna tell folks how to get in touch with you toward the end of the show here, because I, I know a lot of people got very excited about this and said, yeah, I want this over with in my area, and I'm just going to, I'm a lawyer, I'll just go litigate it myself. And that could that could actually undo uh, some of the good work that has been done here. And I know you are willing to consult with other attorneys to some extent about how how to do these cases, uh, even if they're in places where you are not. So, just want to underline underline too many too many exclamation points at the end of that sentence. Just want to get it through to folks that you know do not do not run rogue on this, or you could undo the work that has has already. Uh, gone into it. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to Maurice Thompson about the federal case regarding mandatory rental inspections. We're also going to talk about some other property rights, uh, wholesaling type stuff uh, after the break. If you have a question for Maurice, 877-772-9658 is the number to call, or you can send us an email by going to our website, realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you happen to be listening to us on your on your iPhone or something because you're listening through a podcast, we are, in fact, live on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. And wherever, that's Eastern time, wherever you are in the entire world and, you know, probably on the moon, although the signal might be a little bit delayed, you can listen to us on the internet at wmkvfm.org live streaming during that time if you're wondering how people ask questions when you're listening to it you know at three o'clock in the morning on a tuesday because you can't sleep it's because we do the show live on the flip side if you're used to listening to us live on your radio or at wmkvfm.org you can also check out the podcast of the last 200 programs that we have done at realliferealestate.com or on iTunes. So there you go. Uh, Maurice, before we wrap up the rental inspection uh, issue, got a couple of emails here from listeners. Glenn says, I am in Central Florida where these rental inspections are done under the guise of ensuring public safety. (laughs) Is there any projection as to how long before this decision and its benefits might reach me? Sure. Anytime. It just depends upon the ordinance that actually governs a particular person, whether it's something we could challenge or not. But uh, a lot of these ordinances can be taken out really at any time. And and as to the gentleman's point about public safety, well, that's that's typically always the justification that's used. Whenever somebody is planning about public health, public safety, public welfare for the children, you know these kind of buzzwords and catchphrases that typically mean that it's kind of one special interest group warring against another, and that's often the case. What we find with many of these rental inspection requirements, for example, is that big apartment owners are exempt from them, but they only apply to single-family homes. So the apartment owners, by lobbying for the inspections and for driving up the cost of of rental uh, businesses for, for houses, can sometimes effectively defeat their opponents through government regulation instead of through the free marketplace. And that's common in almost all areas of occupational licensing, Uh, although by all means many of these regulations apply uh, to all kinds of landlords. But the bottom line is there are all kinds of ways to ensure against public safety without this prophylactic requirement of invading everybody's home. And remember, 
this is a tenant's home, uh, and if you really care about public safety, why are you spending hours rooting around in the home of somebody who cannot afford their own house or, or maybe are in school, but you're spending zero time home of somebody who maybe has a much more dilapidated, worn-down house right next door, but it's owner-occupied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on the flip side, we have an email here from Michelle in Cincinnati who says, I know this is a show for real estate investors, but doesn't this just give bad landlords another out for not fixing their properties? Right. My answer is essentially the same as it is before, which is you've got to understand that tenants are not idiots. I think that the problem with this argument is the assumption that people who rent are like children and need protection of the government more than people who own, which is frankly insulting. Uh, Almost everybody listening to the show has been a tenant at one time or another when they were younger, or perhaps still to this day when they're older, they made an economic decision that it's maybe smarter for them to rent than to own for one reason or another. Um, These people are not idiots. They can look around a property just as well as as the woman who asked the question can, and decide if the property is suitable for their habitation or not in the first place. And then when there's a problem, these folks are perfectly capable of having a conversation with the landlord, and 99 times out of 100, the landlord is going to fix the problem uh, because the landlord knows that the tenant can withhold rent if it's a serious problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's lots of laws in place to, I mean, just tenant landlord law says landlords must keep their properties in safe and habitable condition and has penalties if that is not the case <laughs> and and you know my my tenants my tenants i think some of them have the the building department on speed dial because they call them before they call me if there's a problem and i get an order instead of a call you know so it you know it, it it's in place michelle don't you don't need to panic that all of a sudden now all rental properties are gonna fall apart so uh, Maurice, there was another topic that came up uh, last time that you were on the air that has also garnered national interest in the real estate community. Uh, about 18 months ago, the an article appeared in the um, Ohio Division of Real Estates or the Ohio Department of Commerce's real estate newsletter that seemed to indicate to a lot of people that the division believed that uh, wholesaling properties was not a legal thing to do unless you had a real estate license, although it wasn't quite clear on how the real estate license fixed things 100%. And that got out all over the country, and I'm still seeing things even today on on, on blogs, on um, you know online communities of real estate investors where people are... Uh, assuring each other that wholesaling is illegal in Ohio. That's where it went. It went from the division saying, it looks like the division might be saying that you need a license to wholesale to it's illegal in Ohio. Uh, where are we, with, if anything, on that? Like, what is, what is, there's been some folks out there with fairly big names putting out videos and so on saying, you know, this is how it is. What, what is, what is your sort of view on that in terms of, um, a, a, a rights issue. Sure. So so to, to start at the beginning, wholesaling, as I understand it, is a practice that's increasingly common uh, where the, the individual who is making some money off the transaction, one of the individuals who's making money, 
is essentially a middleman who finds the property and uh, finds a good deal for an investor that they may know. So, for, for instance, you may find a house and enter into a contract on that house for, say, $50,000, and it, it may turn out that somebody in your network who is a roofer and also buys houses, and this house has a bad roof, is willing to pay $75,000 for that house. And so you may assign the right to buy that house before closing to that individual, and that individual may reward you in one way or another uh, with some sort of a payment for that. And that's all that it is. So it's a really a series of voluntary transactions where the seller agrees to sell and agrees that the sale can be assignable. And then, of course, there's the transaction between the wholesaler and the ultimate seller, and there's the final transaction between the person who ends up buying the house and the person who was the original seller. Everybody is happy, everybody is better off, and everybody has agreed voluntarily. And again, you want people to be treated as adults instead of children, and the key to that really is the freedom to contract to do anything that's voluntary and anything that's peaceful. And wholesaling is certainly voluntary and it's certainly peaceful, and it's certainly legal as well in Ohio, at least under the parameters that I just described. The Division of Real Estate uh, is another organization that is sometimes easily manipulated by certain special interests um, and certain lobbies that are very powerful here in Columbus. And uh, it was not surprising for that reason to see them call wholesaling into question, but really all the division did was call it into question and then immediately back off once challenged. So, so wholesaling, as I described it, is, is perfectly legal, and you don't need a realtor's license either in order to engage in that kind of transaction because you're not acting as a realtor. You're not uh, buying a property or selling a property for another. You're doing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and to be clear, there are things out there that people would put the name wholesaling on that is not what you described. It's, it's much closer to this idea of what I did was I acted as an agent without a license. You know, for, for instance, I am aware from being online and so on that sometimes people will like get a verbal agreement with a seller and then they'll go start trying to sell the deal and then they only put the contract in writing if they find a buyer and golly, that sort of does sound like I'm being an agent, right? I'm, I'm going out and marketing something I don't own. I don't have a contract on even. And it's not, you know, it's, it, I, don't, I don't think Maurice is saying there is no circumstance under which you could cross that line uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I am in fact sort of collecting a commission on something I sort of have no interest in whatsoever. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, assignment of contract uh, thing that, that, most people do is is really what he's referencing here um now maurice you are working on so many things i mean when i I go to your when i go to your website at ohioconstitution.org it's just full of you know property rights um you you fought a case where an amish family was being forced to send their kid to chemotherapy it's just all sorts of things but what are some of the other big issues right now that are going to uh, like directly impact real estate investors, property owners, folks who are listening to this show? Well, the 1851 Center uh, is a nonprofit constitutional rights firm, as I mentioned, and we're essentially a special interest group against every other special interest group. 
So that keeps us extremely busy. While others come to Columbus with their handout and their sword out, attempting to make new regulations that affect others' lives in a negative way, attempting to take more money from others, um, what we simply want is for folks to be left alone to pursue their own interests and their own businesses and have their own property rights and their own home lives and family lives in a state of peace and tranquility, uh, absent government aggression of one kind of another, whether that's an attack on your free speech, an attack on your health care rights, your parental rights, or your property rights. So real estate investors are probably most interested in terms of our recent work. It goes back to probably our elimination of the Ohio estate tax in 2011 and working forward from that, we're currently doing a ton of eminent domain abuse, uh, which is still a problem in Ohio. There, there's a real abuse of something called quick take, and this is quick take is the procedure in eminent domain law where a local government can immediately seize your land simply by filing a complaint tomorrow if they wish to, claiming that they now own the land, and. This procedure is supposed to be for very limited purposes. Basically, one, roads, and two, times of great national emergency. So if we were, say, under attack from a foreign enemy and really limited to that. However, cities and even townships have really attempted to expand the definition of what kind of things fall into quick take and are attempting to use quick take for things like bike paths and sidewalks and uh, economic development projects and all kinds of other things that sometimes you can't even use regular eminent domain for, much less uh, this immediate seizure where government claims to pay you what they think you're entitled to and owns your property the very next day. So, so that's certainly a big issue. And then we're always interested in sort, any sort of regulatory taking. Some cities in Ohio ban working from home uh, as a violation of their zoning laws. And we're going to be taking that issue on sometime before the end of the year. And we're always looking at more Fourth Amendment issues. Uh, The point-of-sale requirements are on our radar as another issue we'll be taking on soon. And this is the requirement that you get and pass a government inspection before you can sell your house to somebody else, which looks and sounds a lot like the rental inspection requirements that the courts have struck down. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, I know that is a, a huge issue, not just in Ohio, but in a lot of surrounding states. It's just accepted that I can't sell my property, I can't rent my property without having a pre-sale, pre-rental inspection and passing it, right? It's not like, <laughs> like I. it's not just that I want to sell my ugly property cheap. I can't sell it unless it passes the inspection, which just, that just floors me that there's, there's people who live in cities like that and who have not sued their cities. Right. You know, you, Milton Friedman, the uh, Nobel laureate economist, used to have this old saying about licensing laws and these kinds of laws, and that is that um, when government requires every car to be a limousine, this was like the 70s when that was a cool thing to have a limousine apparently, <laughs> uh, every car will be a limousine, but almost nobody can afford a car. Every, you know, The people that can only afford a Yugo won't have a car at all. And much the same is true of these houses. When government requires every item to be perfect, well, all of a sudden folks who are investors, rehabbers, do-it-yourselfers, who actually might be looking for the deal that comes with a house with some some flaws, but with some character, an older house maybe, 
um, they don't get as good of a deal because the owner now has to beckon to these lists of demands and spend all this money to fix this up and then pass the costs on to the would-be purchasers who are going to do this themselves or use their own team of contractors. So it really drives up the cost of a real estate transaction, especially if you throw the realtor's fees on top of that, which, of course, are also required by government through the licensing laws for realtors in Ohio. We need to take another quick break. If you would like to ask any questions, make any comments uh, for Maurice talking today about uh, basically, you know, how do we fight for our our property rights? The number is 877-772-9658. That's eight followed by four sevens, 256-29658. Or you can send us an email. Just go to realliferealestate.com, click the Ask a Question tab, and send it on over. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Maurice Thompson, the Executive Director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. If you have um, rental registration or rental, uh, sorry, mandatory rental inspections in your area, if you have some reason to need to contact uh, 1851 Center, you can go to ohioconstitution.org. Ohioconstitution.org is their website. You can read about the uh, case on mandatory rental inspections at ohioconstitution.org slash inspections and um, find out more about that and about uh, things that you can do to move forward in your own area. Uh, not that there aren't plans in place, um, and Maurice, and I know we can't talk a whole bunch about them, but there's plans in place to try and hear this case in other parts of the country so that there can be multiple precedents on this, as I as I understand it anyway. Uh, but that's ohioconstitution.org slash inspections. Um, we're going to go to the phones and talk to Dave on line one. Dave, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Hi, Maurice. Hi, Dave. Howdy. Um, well, I just wanted to call and see, is there any potential use for this precedent um, in the future for um, homeowners associations or, or any other uh, non-government or non-public governing body? Uh, give us give us a for instance, Dave. Like what 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 is an HOA doing that you think is uh, intrusive? So if they have if they have implemented a uh, a process by which, uh, in order to uh, ostensibly prevent anyone in there from from renting, instead of um, you know if the bylaws, if everyone says uh, that they don't want to amend the bylaws to. Um, to do that, then the, the HOA comes back and says, well, then we're going to require an inspection of the property, a vetting of the tenant, and implement all of these rules, have you sign a separate lease where, whereby if you don't pay your fees, then we, you know, we collect rent and, and all of these other things. Hmm. Um, could it be potentially applied in that case? I'm going to give you a very, a very honest and direct, but um, perhaps very disappointing answer. Something all three of which you don't usually get from a lawyer. Well, okay, you usually get the disappointing part from a lawyer. I understand that part, but the answer is it's basically no. But no for good reason. Um, the idea of a, of constitutions that limit government is basically to limit limit government. So the Constitution uh, is a charter of negative liberties. And in fact, uh, I know while lots of people don't like 
or homeowners associations um, or the condo associations, uh, myself included as one of those folks. Uh, but nevertheless, um, those kinds of private arrangements and private agreements are the very thing that obviates the need for government interference. So when you develop one of those communities or you buy into one of those communities, you're on notice of what the rules and regulations are. They're completely private. They're completely enforced by private actors. And the idea is that if neighbors look after one another through these agreements, that in fact that's a much better system than governments interfering and um, using command and control uh, to go after people at the point of a gun with the idea that you could be jailed if you disobey. So I think these things are actually innovations that make people better off most of the time than worse off. Now, with that said, there are some instances that, uh, where contracts, private contracts, are just unenforceable. For example, if your HOA agreement says uh, you cannot rent to people of a certain race or sell to people of a certain race, the, the federal government has simply found that, look, that contract term can't be enforced. It's unenforceable as a matter of law. So you may have a policy argument that your particular contract term is so unconscionable that no court could possibly enforce it because the court, by taking action, would essentially be government lending its credibility and its endorsement of that contract term. Okay. All right, thank you. All right, Dave. Thanks very much for your call. Sorry you didn't get the answer that you wanted. But, uh, you know, the same thing applies. To, I, can't, I can't tell you how many questions I got about whether this meant that Section 8 couldn't do inspections of your properties uh, up front or annually. And the answer, of course, is no, because you you voluntarily contract with Section 8, and that's part of their requirements, right? You don't have to do it. Right, exactly. You know, we focus on representing people who are simply trying to be left alone to pursue their own direction in life. Uh, when you decide that you're going to make money off of a government program like Section 8, then you accept the terms of that government program and the strings that come attached to that money. And that's perfectly reasonable that folks that, uh, you know, that if, if government's going to pay the rent of certain individuals to live in your property, that they ought to be able to come in and look around before they pay you that rent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we only have about four minutes left in the program, and there's so many things that, that you know, we could talk about uh, that are, are just um, intrusions that we have become used to and do not, uh, we, we sit around and complain about them, but we don't do anything about them. And uh, one of the big ones has to do with um, almost every city in Ohio has seen humongous increases in the past four or five years in uh, water and sewer bills, like huge, like like 200% in some cases. And I just saw an article today that said our county commission here is uh, hearing from the water department about how they want another 5.5% rate increase over the course of the next year or so. Uh, you actually uh, have a case in regards to that, and are are aware of the background of why these bills are are these 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 um, water bills are going up so fast. Can you talk a little bit about that in just the last couple of minutes here? Right, this is um, <laughs> making this a two minute issue, um, <laughs> quite the challenge. But the the background is that the federal government through the EPA has uh, threatened usually, and sometimes actually sued 
uh, all of these local governments for being out of compliance in one way or another with some federal regulation that the EPA administers related to water or, or sewer or stormwater um, more recently. And these local government um, folks typically immediately uh, just give in and capitulate and sign some sort of a settlement degree that they claim requires them to turn around and then raise folks' taxes or their fees or whatever it might be in order to fix the problems. And, of course, they don't have to do that, and we can challenge these things, and we often are able to defeat them. And really the key principle on this issue to keep in mind is that government can charge you money in two different ways. One is a tax, and one is a fee. And a tax is a property tax. You pay the same amount no matter how much you might use a a certain service. And then a fee, like a water bill, depends upon how much of the service you actually use. And what local governments in Ohio and in many other states under the state constitutions can't do is they cannot treat a fee as a tax. That means that they actually have to be providing you more services in order to raise the, raise the fee. And if they're not providing you more services, it's probably an unconstitutional property tax. And so some of these um, things have been challenged and defeated in other states, and we're also working on that in Ohio. So, for example, there's something called a stormwater fee where you, you are actually taxed because rain falls out of the sky <laughs> and goes into the sewer system and drains into a Ohio River or whatever river it might be near you. You're actually charged a tax based on the amount of square feet of impervious surface on your property. So they actually come out and measure the length and width of your driveway, the length and width of your roof, the length and width of your patio. They're currently trying to do this in all of Cleveland through this thing called the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. I have no idea logistically how they're actually measuring all these things, but that's what they're actually doing. And they assess a property tax, basically, based upon the amount of impervious surface you have. So they don't count grass, they don't count farm fields, but they count pretty much everything else. And and this is the tax for which you get no benefit or service whatsoever. And these things will typically be found unconstitutional, and that one likely will be within the next few months. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we're going to have to send folks to your website at ohioconstitution.org to learn more about that and other issues that you are dealing with and for, you know, again, any help they need with uh, things that are going on in their areas. We are out of time, but thanks to Maurice Thompson, Executive Director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.